0: I know I promised some science here at the end of uh, the last segment, but I want to do just a little bit of politics <laughs> before we do that, starting with the fact that Puerto Rico has voted, has voted to become a U.S. state. It took the fourth try to get the Puerto Rican public to do this, but apparently the referendum in November won by 54%. The Puerto Ricans voted to change Puerto Rico's current status as a self-governing commonwealth, And I guess this was a two-parter. 61% people said they wanted the new form of government to be full American statehood. As you may or may not know, the U.S. gained control of Puerto Rico in 1898 following the Spanish-American War. Puerto Rico set up its own government in 1952, and its residents do not pay federal income taxes. Nonetheless, noted the economist, it's still effectively a colony. But over the years, Puerto Ricans have sort of like the fact that they don't have to pay income tax and they do get a lot of aid money coming from the U.S. to the Caribbean island, comma, commonwealth, parentheses, colony. Now, this correspondent has taken the position in the past that Puerto Rico should be allowed to become an independent nation. The sooner, the better. And I think I'm going to stand by that one. Of course, for Puerto Rico to become the 51st state, Congress now has to give its okay, and we shall see about that. With all of our current budget woes in Congress, adding Puerto Rico to the mix <laughs> may not be the best financial decision they could make in Washington. Yeah, that's, that's just my opinion. But if you want to up the chances of you having an opinion like it, I'd say go visit Puerto Rico. I did a chance to visit Puerto Rico back in uh, 2003 and well it was just a real interesting experience that's all I can say I don't remember Mr. Milne did I did I tell the story about winding up in a love hotel for lack of better accommodations not once but twice I believe you did yeah well I should tell that one again one day not today though oh and I guess I should clarify that was find myself in a love hotel by myself twice in Puerto Rico which, which, frankly, was a lot, a lot better than having company, to tell the truth. But again, I'm not going to go into this today. I'll just leave those remarks as cryptic. All right, two other brief political items. Piece on the web from MedPageToday.com notes that the states in the U.S. are spending most of their anti-smoking dollars on other things. In fact, according to the piece, only 1.8% of the $25.7 billion states will collect from both taxes on cigarettes and the 1998 tobacco settlement, which amounts to about $460 million, will go to tobacco prevention and treatment programs next year. The piece cites a quote from Matthew Myers, president of the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, saying, The states have an obligation to use more of their billions in tobacco revenues to fight the tobacco problem. Their failure to do so makes no sense given the evidence that tobacco prevention programs save lives and save money by helping reduce health care costs. Well, Mr. Myers, it does make sense if you want to study the lobbying efforts of the tobacco people. Anti-smoking campaigns are effective, so if you can bamboozle states into spending those funds on other things, well, you're that much ahead of the game. And believe you me, they do make such efforts. All right, let's start out with a bit of biology. We talked to uh, Michael Pollan on this program some years back about um, the locavore movement and efforts to make, uh, well, the whole food chain a little more sustainable and sensible. And we hope by now you have read his wonderful book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, in which he describes an ecologically oriented farm back east that raises chickens the old-fashioned way by letting them basically grow out on the farm, not, not inside of uh, cages or confined spaces. And oddly enough, I thought briefly about this when I was in Laos a few weeks back, watching some of the local chickens. And of course, chickens originate from that part of the world, Southeast Asia. There's chickens all over the place, at least up in Luang Prabang, the uh, mountain refuge I found myself in. And uh, if you watch chickens out uh, on the make doing the things that chickens do, well, what you'll find them doing a lot of times is scratching the earth and seeing what pops up in the way of worms and grubs and bugs and uh, eating them. Over the millennia, this has been a pretty good way of raising chickens. So I'm a little bit struck by the fact that uh, uh, a subject of great controversy, as per New Scientist magazine, is the issue that uh, in the future we may be eating Larva, maggots, at least indirectly by using them as an animal food. Well, thinking about the chickens, I'd have to say this ain't exactly a new idea. But to quote from the editorial pages of New Scientist, "...from manure to maggots, to meat, to a meal, this food chain sounds revolting, but its environmental merits are hard to dispute. It makes use of a commodity that is usually just discarded, and the alternatives are increasingly scarce and expensive." Feeding manure-fed maggots to livestock will face many obstacles before it becomes common agricultural practice, which I have to question that. It's a common agricultural practice everywhere on Earth. What are these guys talking about? Not least because each stage of the process runs foul of the yuck factor, and its safety will have to be beyond question, given the unintended consequences of past attempts to re-engineer the food chain. Adding, this is particularly an issue in the UK where BSE still looms large in the public memory. Well, this is not the same deal. This is not grinding up sheep spinal columns and feeding them to cattle. But inside the magazine, an article by Andy Coughlin goes into some detail over this, explaining how Howard Bell of the UK Food and Environmental Research Agency in York is, along with other researchers, investigating the potential of growing maggots on manure, food On manure, food, I presume food waste, and brewery waste. Once they've grown fat, the maggots are harvested, dried, and crushed into a protein-rich powder for feeding to chickens, fish, pigs, and other farm animals. Peace notes that European farmers currently import 80% of their animal feed, mostly soy, from South America. But that uh, U.S. farmers face a feed crisis, too. For example, the price of maize... But known to us as corn, fed to pigs in the U.S., has trebled since 2007. This is in part because of George Bush's crazy idea that we should be turning corn into ethanol, in spite of the fact that uh, it takes basically four gallons of fossil fuels to produce five gallons of ethanol. But given the exponential rates at which uh, insects can reproduce and, and grow larvae, why wouldn't we be taking food waste and converting it into a protein-rich powder to feed to our animals? I don't I don't see why this should be a problem. And Mr. Millen raises the question, of why do you have to dry it? Why can't you just let the chickens eat the larvae? Well, I, 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 I don't know. Perhaps transportation costs. I don't know. Later in the piece it asks, Is meat from fish and animals fed on maggot cake likely to be safe to eat? To which a researcher responded, Well, nothing's happening there that wouldn't take place harmlessly in nature. We're all eating trout from streams, and guess what they eat, he says. Likewise, chickens, pigs, and other farm animals all eat grubs and maggots that they find while foraging. Maggot cake would just be a more concentrated form. I don't know. If we're going to feed this planet as the population continues to grow, we're going to have to do something like this. And, you know, it actually seems fairly ecologically minded to this correspondence, so I don't know. We're going to have to ask some questions to the food science people here at UC Davis about this uh, and and other related topics. By the way, some people seem to be panicked about the fact that the U.S. population growth has has now slowed to its lowest level in 92 years, after coming back from Shanghai, where I spent uh, basically a day two weeks ago, uh, a city that has 26 million people in one spot, uh, which is more than the entire population of Canada, the world's second largest nation in area, I would say that a slowed population growth is a godsend. But more on that later. Let's segue uh, into medicine a bit. I have that piece from Cosmos magazine, which we talked about with uh, Pamela, an Australian publication we're going to learn more about in the future. But uh, the piece on sugars, written by Claire Payne, deserves to be quoted from a bit. He starts off noting that in 1980, doctors from the Mayo Clinic reported a worrying experience with a hitherto unnamed disease, in that liver biopsies from 20 patients had revealed regions of dead cells, signs of inflammation, striking fatty changes, and Mallory bodies, which are bright pink-staining structures that are a classic sign of alcoholic liver disease. The odd thing? None of the patients drank. This new disease was given a name, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. According to the piece, in 2012, it is the most common liver disease in the U.S. and possibly throughout the developing world. The article asks the question, how is it that in just over 30 years a condition can go from being unknown to the most common disease of a particular organ? Pediatric endocrinologist Robert Lustig at UC San Francisco is convinced he knows the answer. Excessive consumption of sugar, and one sugar in particular, fructose, the kind found in sweet fruit. Notes the piece, today only a small proportion of dietary fructose comes from fruit. In the U.S., the major source is high-fructose corn syrup, HPCS. This cheap sweetener made from maize contains a mixture of fructose between 42 and 55% and glucose and is widely used in soft drinks. Dr. Lustig believes that it is the fructose in our diets that is causing raised insulin resistance, fatty liver, and other symptoms of metabolic syndrome a collection of symptoms that has escalated in the population for the past 40 years. Now, definitions of metabolic syndrome do vary a bit, but bulging waistline, high blood glucose concentrations, high blood pressure, high levels of bad fats in the blood, cardiovascular disease, and fatty liver are often involved. People with metabolic syndrome are at risk for developing diabetes, heart disease, and stroke. Depending on the definitions used, the proportion of affected adults in the U.S. is between 15 and 34%. The article quotes Karen O'Day, professor of population health and nutrition at the University of South Australia in Adelaide, as noting that uh, high fructose in particular is associated with a fatty liver where glucose isn't. Fructose does seem to produce fat where it shouldn't be, like around the heart, in the pancreas, and in the liver adding that having a fatty liver is dangerous, whether it's associated with alcohol or not. Her group in Australia is researching whether the disease can be reversed by a change in diet. She says fructose has little effect on the hormones insulin and leptin, which tell the brain we have eaten and which are an important part of the satiety system, the mechanism by which we feel full. Dr. Lustig at UCSF has co-authored a commentary in the journal Nature, at least he did so last February, arguing that fructose is similar to alcohol in its toxic effects on the liver and suggesting that it should be taxed. A video of a lecture he gave called Sugar, the Bitter Truth has had more than 2.5 million hits on YouTube. Further in the piece, it notes that Peter Havel, an endocrinologist at the University of California, Davis campus, leads a team that is quietly chipping away at the fructose issue. Animal experiments have shown that high fructose diets increase visceral fat, which is the fat around body organs that leads to a large waistline, and raised triglyceride levels in the blood. Havel thinks it's important to do these experiments in humans. And their preliminary research seems to be showing that uh, high fructose in the diet is causing a resistance to insulin in the body, which is not seen when they give people drinks that have glucose in it instead. We're going to have to go knock on Dr. Havel's door here in the future and, uh, and look into this. Speaking of diabetes, we would refer you rather enthusiastically to the current issue of Discover Magazine, a magazine whose demise we prematurely reported a few years ago. They still actually now are turning out some pretty good pieces. Case in point, the piece titled The Bypass Cure by Bijal P. Trevendi in the current issue, which points out uh, the rather startling fact that gastric bypass surgery, which is now one of America's most common operations, apparently also cures type 2 diabetes, literally overnight. To quote from the piece, with more than 25 million cases nationally, type 2 diabetes is America's leading cause of blindness in adults under age 75, also kidney failure and amputations. It also raises the risk of nerve damage, heart disease, and stroke. In 2007, diabetes treatment and its indirect medical costs ran to $174 billion in the United States. As obesity spreads across this country and around the world, those costs are rapidly on the rise. The best way to combat type 2 diabetes, doctors traditionally say, is through diet and exercise-induced weight loss, which sometimes remedies insulin resistance, which is a state where... While the insulin may seem to be there in the body, the cells do not uptake the sugar out of the bloodstream as they normally do, which means that instead of the sugar being in your cells where you need it, it's still out on the highway floating around your bloodstream where it's causing problems. Notes the piece, when lifestyle changes fail, patients must control their blood glucose with regular insulin injections or oral medications. The medical costs for an individual with diabetes are typically 2.3 times higher than for someone without the disease. Now, this is all good and well, but no one expected that doing a Roux-en-Y procedure, wherein doctors basically replumb your gut so that um, you don't have as much intestine that's functioning to absorb the food inside of it, well, you just wouldn't expect that that would cure type 2 diabetes, but again and again and again, it's now been shown that it does. And it does so right away before the patient has left the hospital sometimes. In March of last year, the International Diabetes Federation endorsed bariatric surgery as a type 2 diabetes treatment for obese patients, citing studies indicating that it triggers remission in about 85% of patients. article goes on to cite some surgeons who have been doing long-term studies now, well, in 1995. Uh, One doctor published a 14-year follow-up study showing that bypass surgery proved to be the long-term solution to four out of five diabetic patients. And my question as a citizen, let alone doctor, is why this isn't more generally known by the medical community and populace at large? Could it be that insurance companies have no intention of paying for expensive uh, gastric surgery for a lot of diabetics? Could be. But actually, the really important thing about this is that we not do such radical surgery on everybody, but find out what it is about the surgery that is curing the diabetes. This is where it gets interesting. Apparently, when they replumb your gut, they're doing things that, uh, that change how those stretch receptors kick in. And they basically will staple your, in some cases, stomach down to where it doesn't hold very much so that the stretch receptors kick in much earlier with a much smaller bolus of food. And of course, the hormones that tell you, hey, you're full, are involved in this. Anyway, this is some pretty amazing stuff, and we're going to definitely talk about this at greater length in future programs. Point, I have two other epic blockbuster pieces in front of me. Uh, One from New Scientist about how beta blockers, it seems clearly enough now, don't work as well as we thought they have for the past 40 years. Pated blockers are things such as Indoral, drugs commonly used for high blood pressure and heart disease. We definitely must talk about that, but alas, have no time. We also have to talk about a piece in The New Yorker, an excellent piece, playing off things we've been talking about on this show before about our the ecosystem that's inside of us and outside of us, but the piece by Michael Specter titled, Germs Are Us, is a barn burner, and I suggest... Uh, you're listening you read it for homework so that on the next week's show or the week after when we return to it and actually discuss it at some length you'll be uh you'll be fully up to speed actually whether you ever listen to this program again or not you should read this article it's it's really 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 fascinating and mr millen tells me that we are due for a break so i I guess we better take one i want to talk about travel but i still want to talk about science and doggone there's just not enough hours in the day there's certainly not enough minutes in the hour You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Be back in a minute. Please don't go away.